a thrill of hope, and the weary world rejoices. Those words tell to me an interesting tale. First of all, they're about the birth of Jesus, about the entire earth breathing fresh air of relief because the Messiah, the King, the Rescuer has been born. They're also, I just think, what the Christmas season feels like, or at least what it could feel like. You've had an exhausting year, work has been stressful, you don't see your family enough, and the world's been going crazy, whether politically with increased polarization, or economically with supply chain disruptions, with floods, with a pandemic. And then, suddenly, Christmas. Hallmark movies. Mashed potatoes. Family, gifts, rests, mashed potatoes. Seriously, I love mashed potatoes. <laughs> but I think if everything's going correctly, you get to actually feel it. You feel the words of, oh, holy night. Everything comes to a slowdown, and it's a thrill of hope, and the weary world rejoices. Here's why the song's interesting to me. It's actually written by an avowed atheist. Seriously. One of the most famous Christmas songs, Christmas carols that we sing, was written by someone who never even believed the words he was writing. He was a poet commissioned by a priest, and while we don't really know the story, apparently he agreed. His greatest legacy was for a song whose message he never even believed. I think that story gives me pause. Makes me think about how easy it is to sit in the Christmas story without really being shaped by the Christmas story. Makes me think of how easy it is for us to just kind of go through the motions in this Christmas season. See, I think for many of us, at best, Christmas is a time to come together with those that you love, and at worst, it's a time to remember that you don't actually have anybody at all. But it's just brief. At best, it's a short recess in a long rat race. My concern is that the hope of Christmas has become more of a seasonal emotion than a life-altering reality. That we've tried to capture hope, like bottle it up in a jar or something, rather than allowing this to be something that drives us through an entire year to like reshape the way that we think and live. This December, we've been viewing the Christmas story from different perspectives of people. First, Mary, the mother of Jesus, then Joseph, his earthly father, Herod, the political ruler, and now today, Israel, the people of God. And the first three, like, pretty obvious why we're choosing them, very integral to the story and birth of Jesus. Uh, but Israel might at first seem a little bit out there. Why, why Israel? Well, Israel had the traditions, they had the songs, they had the stories, the poems, the prophecies that were about the coming of the Messiah, who is, in fact, Jesus. We read in Luke 19, as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, where he will eventually come to the cross and die and be crucified. We see him enter the city, the city of the traditions and the, the capital of Israel. And what he does is he weeps, that he weeps over Jerusalem. They sang the songs, they had the poems, they told the stories, they remembered the prophecies, but they missed it. 
See, Israel was a people who were fully immersed in the story of God up to that point. They were, in fact, the people of God, and they rejected Jesus. So the task for us today is, one, to learn from the story of Israel so that we do not follow in actually those footsteps, but also to immerse ourselves in a story that we might be completely unfamiliar with. Oftentimes we try and bypass the story of Israel, but Jesus was himself Jewish. He was himself someone who was born and raised in the community of Israel. So to that end, we are going to immerse ourselves in the story of Israel in Isaiah chapter 11, 10 to 16, to see how they would have responded to the story of Christmas, to the coming of God on earth. And we're going to look at it through three primary areas, identity, relationships, and desire. But to that end, let's go to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 to 16. It says this, In that day, referring to the day of ultimate restoration, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, again, reminding ourselves of the coming day when the Lord fulfills all his promises, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. As a little bit of a background, uh, Israel's history is kind of like a mountaintop and then a definite cliff nosedive. So they start, God calls one person, Abram. Abraham starts to gather and build his ancestral family. They start to have greater and greater generations. Then they're plunged into slavery in Egypt. God miraculously redeems them. And then they all of a sudden, bit by bit, become a nation together um, where David specifically is at this point where they're one of, if not the most, uh, prosperous nations on the earth under King David's rule. And then his son Solomon actually extends that even further, and but from there it starts to just decline. So just visually, it's this kind of like upwards and then massive downwards trajectory. Now, if you are like most people, that went in one year and out the other. We're not a people who tend to jump in and engage with the stories of history as much or kind of like, oh, what was the, what was the pathway that people went through? We're, we're kind of like an anti-tradition type of people, which is very different. That's actually something that sets us apart from Israel. Israel intentionally would look backwards to understand who they were. In terms of their understanding of their identity, they had a very strong sense of a historical identity. I'd say today, we lack lots of that. We are much more about the immediate. We like words like progress and innovation. I, I think of uh, one of my favorite Christmas movies that recently came out on Netflix within the last few years called Klaus, kind of this cute animated story about where Santa Claus came from. And uh, it's kind of about this town that has two warring families, the Crumbs and the Allingbos, and, and they, they like have cannonballs that'll shoot at each other. It's like a whimsical animated adventure. But then there's this like cute little naive innocent girl who just is wanting to be friends with the Ellingbo kids and she's a crumb and she doesn't understand. So one of the crumb leaders takes her through the stories and the histories and the little girl is just asking like, well, why can't I, why can't I be friends with them? And the reason the dark figure, the leader of the crumbs says, because tradition. 
So in some ways, the, the story, as much as it is about Santa Claus, is also about like removing the shackles of tradition. I think this is a common thing that we would experience. We would be resistant to being shaped and to being formed and to understanding ourselves on a historical level in tradition. Robert Bella puts it this way, the meaning of one's life for most is to become one's own person and almost to give birth to oneself. Much of this process is negative. It involves breaking free from family, from community, and inherited ideas, and we would add something like religion as well. We tend to understand ourselves and who we are on an identity level by breaking free from other things. And there's certainly a part of this that is good. I work with students, grades 6 to 12, and there's something that happens in adolescence, which as adolescence takes longer and longer to move out of, I would actually myself still be in, but a process we talk about called differentiation, which is incredibly healthy, where you start to break free from understanding yourself just in the light of your parents or the school that you are brought up, or even sometimes just like the church, the youth group that you were in. And you start to just really understand, I need to separate myself from this. And it's a healthy part of maturity and growing. It's a healthy part of becoming who you are. But I, I think there's a piece where we have, how should I say this? Um, I don't know that we've ever outgrown our desire to differentiate, that all through our lives we're trying to separate ourselves from other things. So we are resistant to being defined or associated with ideas that seem ancient, with traditions that are from our past. We kind of get stuck in this differentiation model. And the issue is, as Robert Bella continues, our culture does not give us much guidance as to how to fill the contours of this autonomous, self-responsible self. So we kind of are stuck on our own to figure out who we are. So we would be resistant to Israel's retelling of the story again and again and again for 500 years, mind you, by the time approximately when this prophecy would have been written. It would have been 500 years that they would have actually seen the last, what would be called, root of Jesse, the one who is referring to King David. It's been 500 years since they would have seen that. And they're still retelling this story, talking about how there's going to be another one, another descendant of David. David who would return. More than just anti-tradition, uh, Craig Gay thinks that impatience is actually the central theme of the Western world for the last 500 years. It says this, modern secular society is thus a culture of anxious impatience, a culture in which so much stress has been placed upon human abilities and human agencies that the modern mind has effectively lost the ability to trust anything or, more importantly, anyone else. He argues that at the center of what it is that's driving our desires and our intentions and our projects today is a serious level of impatience. And that, to me, <laughs> causes lots of self-reflection. And I'm, I am impatient and maybe you are as well, we, we are impatient about career, we're impatient about where we should be in our relationships, we're impatient about um, finances, and, and we're impatient about things like justice. We are, and I, I feel impatient about how long it takes me to become patient. Like, there's so many different things, and you see this again being manifested through uh, online shopping and the ease of access there. You see this being manifested through things like DoorDash or Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes, where you just get to drive, have food given right to you. We are increasingly an impatient culture. We, I think, are actually having a shift towards believing that humans can do it better and faster than some sort of arcane, airy belief about God. This is actually the primary argument of Craig Gay, is that 
we've decided to wait for God to do things just takes too long. Even if he is real, why wait? It seems like we can do it better on our own. Now, contrast this with St. Basil in the 4th century, who, before he was a bishop, was a monk and had one of his pupils come to him and ask him, like, give me a word, Father. Speak a word to me. And Basil says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the pupil leaves and then 20 years later comes back and says, I have wrestled over obeying that word for the last 20 years. Give me another. And then Basil continues and finishes the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And the pupil leaves and he continues to practice that. The patience, the dedication, and the discipline to say, this is the way I'm going to walk day after day after day. Or Israel, who, as I've already mentioned, approximately around the time this prophecy would have been written, would have been waiting 500 years for another king like David who had his heart after God. And in fact, another 500 years later, it would still take for Jesus to arrive on the scene. And yet they were still retelling the story, still believing that God would do it. Walking in patience, believing in God, retelling the stories, living with a historical sense of their identity of who they are called to be. But Israel didn't just look backwards. They didn't just look in their history to understand who God was or who, who they were called to be. They also looked upwards. So they looked backwards and they looked upwards. They looked at God to understand themselves. In that day, this is verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, turning to God and to his deliverance to see, God, would you save us once again? You've already done it before. Would you do it again? See, there's a definite need for us to walk the road of patience and of waiting and living in history. But I also think there's another danger if we live without expectation. I think that Israel retold their stories again and again and again so they could remind themselves, as Gary Smith says, that God's power to save is unlimited. So I think in our sense of immediacy, of the present moment, of getting wrapped up just in what we see around us right now, we can forget that there's actually a God who's been alive since the very beginning, that he actually is the one who created all that is and all that will be. And he is the one who can continue and will continue to deliver his people. Something I've been praying really recently is, God, would you shake me from the routine of limited expectation? God, would you prevent me from just walking through the motions, acting like you're not there, acting like the discouragements that I see right now are all that I'll ever be? Would you help me to believe that your power to save is unlimited, and that you continue to be at work. There's a definite reason, I think, that we fall into some of this routine. Um, Craig Gay, again, lets us know that impatience is a sure indication of loss of heart, that we no longer really believe that God is willing and perhaps even that he is able to deliver us. I think there's a reason that we can lose our sense of expectation and anticipation in God working, that he would actually transform people's lives and hearts, that he would perform miracles and healings right now, that we'd actually lose that sense of expectation is because, yeah, sure, on the one hand, if all you have is patience, you'll be apathetic. But on the other hand, if all you have is expectation, we know you'll be disillusioned. 
to just walk day after day saying, God's going to work powerfully today and then just feel like you're being disappointed again and again. I feel like it's that loss of heart that Craig Gay talks about, that you're just being torn down. And yet Israel tried to maintain the resilience of a patient expectation day after day after day by reliving these stories, by reliving these stories again and again and again. So we want to have that same type of resilience. We, like Israel, want to look backwards and upwards in order to actually propel us forwards. That in our sense of understanding what's happened in history, what God has done, what has God has already done, and who our God is right now in this present moment as well, that would actually be, able, be the thing that would drive us forwards. It would propel us forwards. And so we transition then into verse 12 and 13 to see what it is, what this deliverance will look like. And it's clearly about propelling them, the entire people of God, not just individuals. Verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It's a movement of gathering people together. It's a people-centric, a community-centric, a covenant-centric vision. Stanley Grenz goes so far as to say is that God's ultimate intention for creation is the establishment of community. I don't know that I often think about it like that. I, I often think that communities can seem more like an add-on, like an opt-in program or like some sort of downloadable content that doesn't come with the original package. Like I, I think of, even, even if we're in the Christmas season right now and I think of the way that we receive gifts, like I often think in terms of what Jesus has done in this world and what he continues to do, I kind of think of it like Jesus is giving me a gift. Like I'm sitting down, I'm getting my like personally hand-wrapped gift. Like, ah, oh, thanks Jesus. What, what'd you get me for Christmas this year? Israel, all the way through, is thinking about, God, what are you doing for us as a people? Like the community of people together, what are you doing for us? It's not just about me getting my personalized gift, though totally Jesus like heaps blessings upon blessings upon his individual children, but it also causes me to ask, God, not just what are you going to do for me, but like, what's in it for my neighbor? What's in it for the single mom down the, down the road from me who barely has enough money to make ends meet, who has to choose between going to work and putting her child in daycare, but if she does that, daycare costs so much that she can barely actually even afford to do that anyways, even while working, and she has to make this difficult decision. What's in it for the people whose houses have been completely destroyed by the floods here in the Fraser Valley? What's in it for the exhausted and burnt out workers who feel like they just cannot put enough in, that they're always trying to reach further and yet it's still never enough? What's in it for them? See, the vision of God is not a vision that's just about individuals. It's actually a vision that's about community. In the Old Testament, it's described in this covenant people loving each other, but the New Testament just really simplifies it specifically down to that one word, love. That this is a vision not of individualism, not of self, but of love. Expressed most fully in the Son of God who came to earth to die for the forgiveness of our sins. That he would sacrifice himself in love. 
See, I think the scourge of individualism actually inhibits our ability to have meaningful relationships, that we actually frequently lose our ability to see, even right now in this moment, what it is that God's doing and what he wants to do, because we think that community is an opt-in program and not something that's just like central to what God is doing. And it's even, even as Grenz would say, his ultimate intention for creation being the community, relationship with others, and ultimately relationship with God himself. A few years ago, uh, there was a movie called Wonder Woman put out, which if you haven't seen it, you're probably in the majority. Uh, DC has never been able to put out anything that competes with Marvel, so at least on a, on a film level. So, so if, you're, if you're not feeling savvy to, to the movie world, let me enlighten you. Uh, Wonder Woman about um, a woman, Diana, who is an Amazon warrior, not actually a human, but coming to Earth, and there's this portion where she's not supposed to be falling in love with men because they're like the enemy and she, she's not supposed to, but something's actually happening. Uh, and so, so she's wrestling with this and it's also integrating like, what does it mean to be human? And so in the background as this is all unfolding, there's this soundtrack by Sia or the specific song by Sia called To Be Human. And the, the central line of the chorus is to be human is to love. And the main character, as she's wrestling here on Earth, she's, she's falling in love and realizing maybe I actually have some, extent, some sense of what it means to be human because to be human is to love. You might be surprised to hear that I'm actually inclined to agree with that. Sorry, inclined to agree with that. With some caveats. So obviously the movie is referring to a romantic type of love. But uh, if, if I was to define what it means to be human, I actually think to say that to be human is to love is actually pretty biblically sound. Uh, humans created in the image of the God who is himself love. Humans created in the image of the God who is himself Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, actually experiencing relationship and love just at the core of who he is. That we actually express that most fully in relationship with one another and, and God. That to not love, to walk in the way of individualism and to walk in the way of separation and to see community as an add-on, friendship as an add-on, support and sacrifice as an add-on, is to actually be less than human. Community is not an add-on. I've been trying to redefine recently what it means for me to follow Jesus. There's certainly this piece where I've been emphasizing that like specific uh, vertical relationship with God where I'm trying to dig in deeper in my spiritual disciplines, in scripture, in prayer, in memorization, in fasting, etc. But I've also been asking myself to understand how I'm doing spiritually, how I understand how I'm doing as a human, what's my capacity to love? That if I'm able to go home and spend hours upon hours, which truthfully is quite rare, hours upon hours is not my common experience, but even if I was able to do that, hours upon hours in the presence of God, but also turn a blind eye to every person in need that I ever saw, am I still less than human? Am I, am I still missing the point? And I think the answer is yes. What's my capacity to love? That, that loving is actually central to God's vision for people. I also want to say this, in this uh, vision of community, 
I, I think that there's a beautiful picture here in verse 13. So part of this community and relationship involves reconciliation. So verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. There have been tensions in the different clans and tribes of Israel. And so I just really want to point out here, there's like a relational like coming together between them, but there's also like an emotional reconciliation. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. On an emotional level, there's actually healing. That God actually cares more about your emotional well-being than you do. It's not something that's just like separate. He deeply cares about your emotional well-being. The issue is that our path of self-help and self-care is perhaps more of a broad path that leads to our own destruction than the way of healing that is found in Jesus and in love and in sacrifice. But I want to be careful. Because I think it's just too easy to say that everything you want is found in Jesus. I think it's too easy to say, like, listen, your, your desire for emotional healing is found in Jesus. And just to say that all of your desire will be met and found in Jesus. I think there's some truth to that. But, man, this is the story of Israel. The ones that Jesus wept over because they missed it. They were the ones who, for centuries, had had their desires and affections shaped by the story of God's working with them throughout history, who retold the stories and the traditions and the songs again and again and again. But they had to lay some of their desires down. Verse 14, they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. It's a vision of God's deliverance and rescuing from enemies, but it's also a vision of nationalism and political dominance. Nationalism was one of the central things that kept Israel from seeing Jesus as their savior and their rescuer. That actually missing the fact that Israel uh, had come to be saved by one who wanted to gather nations together and to do so not through military violence, not by political might, but by dying on a cross. One of the central objections of Israel to Jesus. I think of 1 Corinthians 2 where Paul writes about how Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to the Jews who wanted signs, powers, showings of miracles and majesty. The cross does not show that. And to the Greeks who wanted wisdom and insight and knowledge never before seen on earth, the cross was just foolishness. That their desire was actually an obstacle for them seeing what Jesus truly was and is. But then Paul, in a couple verses later, will say that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But the things that Israel and the Greeks wanted most desperately was actually also found in Jesus. See, Jesus is, in some ways, both the antithesis and the greatest fulfillment of our desire. He's the one where we have to lay our lives down at the feet of the cross as Jesus himself dies on the cross. Jesus tells us to carry our cross, to bear our cross. And yet also to find life, that whoever would lose, whoever would gain their life must lose it. So 
my question is, what if rather than seeing like our best life as the one that actualizes our passions and our desires, what if our passions are the obstacle? What if our desire is actually more dark and deceptive and destructive than we ever dared to imagine? What if Paul's right when in 2 Corinthians 6 he says that you are restricted in your own affections? What if our desire is the obstacle to Jesus' life invading us right in this moment? C.S. Lewis tells this beautiful story around desire. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making pie, making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're stuck in the mud. Or to use a different image, we are literally prisoners of the moment. Trapped and bound by the shackles of our own impatience and jailed behind walls of our own self-reliance. We've traded glory and love and joy for a mud pit in a jail cell. Man, it seems exhausting. It seems stressful. And it seems like it's just not going anywhere. Think of N.T. Wright saying, left to ourselves, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy, acquiescing in the general belief that things may be getting worse, but there's nothing much we can do about them. And we are wrong. You know, the life of constant exhaustion and weariness and cynicism and polarization and disappointment and discouragement, it's not actually the end of the story. That the hope of Christmas is to actually say the vision of exhaustion and weariness and desperate, hopeless environments is actually the false reality that there's a God above who invades the present moment and walks with us. The final vision in Isaiah 11 here is that there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Yeah, their desire for a nationalistic hero led them astray. But the deeper desire, the ultimate thing they needed of deliverance from evil, deliverance from slavery, and even as Jesus comes and says, deliverance from sin itself, that's way better. What we see in the story of Israel's leaving from Egypt, what we call the exodus, leaving from slavery in Egypt, is that the first step was that they needed to be brought out of Egypt. But the second and perhaps the more difficult step was that Egypt needed to be brought out of them. That all of their jealousy, all of their infighting, all of their anger and bitterness and frustration, all of their lust, they needed ultimate deliverance from that. Israel had a vision of a super highway of all peoples being drawn to God. And they missed it. So here's where we stand today on this December 26th, leaving the Christmas season. Gosh, we just want this hope to not be a seasonal emotion. We want this hope to actually be long-lasting. 
in fact, to be the eternal type of hope. What does that hope look like? Well, it's patient and expectant at the same time. It's resilient amongst dis amidst disappointment. It's sacrificial and loving. It's not self-seeking, but it's self-serving. It's not limited by our own imagination, but it actually could extend far greater. It is yielding our desire and ultimately saying, God, whatever it is that you would have, that is greatest. Remove from within me the obstacles. Remove me, cleanse me, forgive me from my sin. I found for myself, even personally in this season, uh, a deeper longing for God to move in powerful ways, even within the last few weeks. But that's been coupled with some prayers following the pattern of the Psalms. See, it was not uncommon if you go through the Psalms, I think Psalm 78 in particular is the one that my heartbeat has been crying out for, is how common it was for Israel to pray for generations that weren't even born yet that they would encounter and know the living God. Hope becomes a seasonal emotion when we define the work of God based on what only we can see. Israel used their sense of being able to look back in history as a safeguard to protect them from forgetting the fact that God is always at work. The only way hope can be long-lasting and resilient that walks both the road of patience and expectation at the same time is if it's a hope that's okay with seeing promises fulfilled even when we are gone and are no longer there to see it. It's a hope that has to be long-lasting down the road. And so, I stand here in hope as a witness to the God who operates not on my timeline, but on a better one. I walk now in love by the model of the one who chose to die that he could draw all people to himself. In the words of Athanasius, it is only on the cross that a man dies with his arms, with his arms outstretched. May our love be the heavenly kind that draws people in. I live now with humble desire, fervently seeking Jesus above all. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait for the day when Jesus finally returns and restores all things. Come soon, Lord Jesus.